I think you might agree with me when I say that it is not an uncommon occurrence to be so used to a text of Scripture or a truth of Scripture that it fails to stir us like it should, fails to shock us, even fails to confront us, fails to hook us. Oh, uh, a text that contains the words of Jesus calling a woman a dog, as we saw a few weeks ago. Tell me more about that. I want to hear that. But this text, take up your cross and follow me. Don't waste your time. I already get that text. Perhaps I'm not the only one that can fall prey to that mentality. But the fact that Jesus spoke these words to professing believers perhaps should give us pause on that mentality. Perhaps we should ask the question, do I really get this text? I think it's an irrefutable fact that there are many people who say that they're believers, but they can't articulate in any way, shape, or form the gospel they say they believe in. They don't get the gospel, and yet they say they're believers. I think it's also an uncontestable fact that there are many among those who might be able to explain the gospel, but who don't actually really follow Christ in any way that reflects the teachings of Scripture. And in fact, if you might gently press into somebody in that situation, they might even be angered by it. Maybe we do need this text after all. Maybe it, it should confront us a little bit. Maybe it should stir us. So my prayer has been for a couple of weeks now that the Spirit would shake the dust of this text off in our souls. As I preached to you this morning on the cross of Christ and the cross of Christians, or a shortened title, Christ's cross and our cross. And here's the big idea that I hope we walk away with. That Jesus Christ, as we just sang, absolutely paid it all. But following him may cost you everything. Jesus Christ paid it all, but following him might cost you everything. So we begin with the top half of this passage, the first paragraph, the cross of Christ. Let me reread verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, Jesus has already alluded to his death several times in several ways, right? But here, he puts his impending death and resurrection in plain view, fully on the barrel. He has not done that yet. Those words from, from that time would be a marker that we see periodically through the Gospel of Mark, letting the reader know we're entering a new section, and in fact, we are. Up to this point, Jesus' ministry has been primarily public with some private smatterings in there. But now, his ministry is going to be mainly private with a few public aspects to it. This is the first of four explicit now 
put it all in plain view on the barrel, prophecies that he is going to go to the cross. Since there's only four, I want you to look at all of them in the Gospel of Matthew. Make a little text train. You might put next to verse 21 of Matthew 16, the number 17 colon 22-23, because that's the next reference. Let's turn there. Chapter 17, verses 22 to 23. Jesus again foretells his death and resurrection. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. That's reference two. You may want to put it in the margin there. Chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Let's go there. Chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, reads, Jesus foretelling his death a third time, quote, verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then the fourth reference, you might put this in the margin, chapter 26, verse 2, which reads, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So there you have a new section in Matthew that's emerging where Jesus is making very plain and clear why he came to the earth. The first three all mention the resurrection. The third and fourth references make plain that his death will be by crucifixion. And here, the first reference, I think there's just, there's five elements I want to quickly point out. He says, I quote, I must go. He's not saying, eh, you know, maybe it'll happen. Perhaps it will. No, you sense the divine necessity in that. It's like why it's like he's saying, This is why I came. It's like he is the Lamb, Revelation 13, 8, slain from the foundation of the world. This was not God's plan B. This was God's plan all along to redeem his people. He must go. Now, where he where is he gonna go? Does it say? To Jerusalem of all places. That's kind of appropriate. Because centuries and centuries and centuries earlier, a father named Abraham had a son named Isaac, and he had a raised dagger in his hand. He was going to sacrifice his son. And what does God provide? A ram in the thicket. And then some years later, they'll build a temple there, and there were untold thousands and thousands of sacrifices in Jerusalem. How appropriate that is. He must go to Jerusalem, and then he says, suffer. And I'm going to tell you that when we get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it's like the footage just slows down into quarter time. Chapter 26 is going to detail that suffering with great clarity, 75 verses in that chapter. The next chapter, 66 verses, and we're going to see all the ways he suffered at the hands of these people. And then it's going to give us the fourth element, how he's going to die. And then the fifth element of this opening verse, how he will be raised from the dead. Now, you and I should be able to share why it is Jesus came to the earth, right? And if you, if you want to grow in that, you should commit yourself to memorizing some verses. I was amazed in Kenya at people who sometimes shared Bibles, how Scripture among the believers, 
so easily was quoted by them. It just like, came out of some of their pores with far, far less access to Bibles and teaching than the rest of us. That was an encouragement to me. So let me encourage you to take time with 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, where Paul talks about how he, the gospel that he preached to them, which they received, in which they believed, in which you stand, and if you keep believing, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, how he was buried, and how he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. It gives us the content of the gospel and the purpose of the gospel that he would die for our sins. Now, verse 22, enter Peter, stage right. Last week, he hit the ball out of the park, didn't he? What did he say last week? You are the Christ of the Son of the living God. And he's probably thinking, man, let me grab that bat and get in the batter's box one more time because I'm about to take another swing. Only this time he is going to really miss the ball. He is, as we've read, he's not going to say, hey, thank you, Lord, for finally making what you've been alluding to totally plain for all of us. Does he, does he say that? Not at all. He, he, the text tells us that Peter took him aside. Can you just imagine Peter patronizingly taking Jesus aside and say, let me get you right on what you just said. Wow. Peter misses that one. This follower of Jesus has now become a counselor to Jesus. And not a very good one at that. He begins to rebuke him. Strong language there. It's used of Jesus rebuking demon, demons and demon-possessed people. Come out! Get away! It's very strong. And then he, 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 he uses this expression which translators struggle with. How do exactly do I express it in English? Where he says, far be it from you, Lord. You may have a footnote that gives you the literal rendering, rendering which is, may God be merciful to you, Lord. But, but translators struggle. How do I take that? Is he saying, may the Lord keep you from ever saying that again? Or is he saying, may the Lord not let that happen? Or is he doing it Southern style when you, know, when you say something that is, you think is totally stupid and they'll say, but bless your heart. Is that, is that, what, is that what he's saying? Uh, we don't know exactly, but, but I think the point is clear. Peter is not down with what Jesus is saying about going to the cross. In fact, Peter follows up with what every Greek 101 student remembers. Nick, you remember this. The double negative in Greek. You learned this like first year. Ume, two negatives. Now in English, two negatives put together is just bad grammar. I ain't never going to do that. Well, first of all, that's bad English. And second of all, that actually means you are because a negative and a negative mean a positive, right? You're going to do it. But not in Greek. It is an intensified, intense, strong statement that this will never happen, which is how they translate it. What does he, what does he say? This shall never happen to you. What a punk, Peter. What a punk us. As we look at Peter, should we not see our reflection in his face? 
How often does following Christ mean something happens that you aren't too crazy about? Or just living life, something happens that you're not so crazy about, and you turn from follower to counselor. How could you let this happen? If you really love me, we are taking Jesus by the shoulder and getting him right. (laughs) And like Peter, we can have some really great mountaintop moments. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for you didn't figure this out. Flesh and blood didn't let you know this, but my father who's in heaven. And now, followed by a really, really bad moment. So when you kill it on a Monday, and you feel like you've apostatized on a Tuesday, take encouragement with Peter. We're going to come back to him. But we should ask the question, well, why is Peter so dogmatic that Christ is not going to die? Why do you think? There are a few commentators that say, well, he's just kind of done the math. He's made the logical deduction that if Jesus is going to die, well, what's that mean for me? So I don't want you to die. I I don't think that's the answer, though. We know Peter had some kick butt in him, right? He's the one that takes off Malchus's ear. We'll see that in Matthew 26. He's the one that says another time when Jesus said he's going to go die, well, then we'll die with you. So I don't think that's it. I'd boil it to this, down to this. The Jewish people were looking for a political emancipator who would deliver them from Roman oppression. By the way, I think that's important to remember as we face November. We should vote according to Scripture. We have a role to take in this process. But do not put your hope in kings, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They were wanting a political emancipator. And Jesus dying doesn't seem to fit the bill, does it? So to be fair to Peter, death is not usually a particularly effective form of rescue and victory, right? Imagine we're all held hostage in this room, and there's a commando unit outside, and you're able to hear the commander of that commando unit give them the battle plan. What are we going to do, sir? You're all going to die. Well, somebody would probably die in a rescue situation. But if everybody died, ain't nobody being rescued. Nobody's getting carried out of here. So to be fair to Peter, death doesn't exactly seem like the way to victory. And what is more, crucifixion was not a heroic death. There were heroic deaths. You could die heroic death just in combat or something like that. But on a cross? No, 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 no. That was considered the most disgraceful form of death. It was reserved for terrorists and foreigners, but as bad as you were, bad stuff you could do as a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. You know what crucifixion declared? Crucifixion declared to the world, and and, and the Roman Empire was massive. It declared to the world that Caesar is Lord as the victim was ground to death in the gears of its machine. And what's even more, the common person understood it that way. They're, they recovered, I've mentioned this before here, they recovered in a prison, some pr- prison graffiti. 
Here's, let me describe the graffiti. There's a man on a cross with a donkey's head, referring to Jesus, and a man named Alexandamonos worshiping him, and it says Alexandamonos worships his God. You know, they were mocking Christians, right, for worshiping a guy, God, who died on a cross. What's even more, it would be like today saying you're worshiping somebody who, who died in San Quentin of an injection needle or died at the hands of a firing squad for, for being a, a, a traitor, something like that. So you got to understand why Peter maybe had a little bit of reservation about Jesus going to the cross. Gee, Peter failed to see what so many people here in 2024 fell to see, what our greatest enemy is, sin. That's our greatest enemy. You may be here, and you may be wondering, why is the world the way it is? If we had better education, if we shared resources more, if we could really get our hands around mental health, if we could be done with racism and all this, and all of those things are good things to, to, to tackle. But none of those strike to the heart of man's problem, which is sin in the human heart. Peter failed to see that. But as we know, because we, now we have the fullness of the story, Jesus would defeat our greatest enemy, sin, by taking our sin upon him at that cross. And on the third day, rising in victory over death, the penalty of sin, death by rising bodily in victory over it. But it all starts. Now, no, no. now it's 11.52, so let me keep going, okay? So yes, yes, one day every enemy is going to be destroyed, right? I mean, the Roman Empire, we read about it in textbooks. They ain't around. And when Jesus Christ returns, be clear about this. Every injustice I just mentioned will be crushed but it starts with the crushing of sin and death on the cross and in his resurrection. It seems Peter can't yet see that. It seems John 1.29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is going over his head and his heart. So now, Jesus responds. Verse 23, but he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. What a turn of events. First pitch, out of the park. Second pitch, you, move, you miss by three feet. Like he goes from speaking because the Father laid it on his heart that this is the Messiah to now being a mouthpiece for Satan himself. How quickly things turn. You, you got to understand that this text is supposed to remind us of another text in Matthew we covered last year. Jesus in the wilderness. Do you remember that? And Satan tempts him to snatch the crown by doing a bypassing of the cross. And that's exactly what Peter's doing. Forget the cross. Let's just go with the crown, baby. No, 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 no. So 
Jesus says to Satan in the wilderness, get away from me. Here he says, get behind me, Satan. It is the same motivation. He says, you are being a hindrance, literally a stumbling block. Peter goes from being the solid rock to a stumbling block really quickly. Jesus continues, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Chad Bird has a great sentence on explaining what that's about. To think thoughts of God, he writes, is to think of a suffering, crucified, dead, and resurrected Messiah. Jesus is strong in his response. Why? Because if he doesn't go to the cross, there is no rescue from our ultimate enemy, sin, and its eternal penalty, death in hell. There is no rescue. But praise God, there is. God sent Jesus to pay our price in full. Jesus paid it all. And so we just plant our feet on this truth. The gospel is not, hey, do this, hey, do this, hey, do this. The gospel is Jesus did it. It's done. And Peter, by the way, will get that. He will stand up at Pentecost, and he will say, this Jesus who you slew with evil and wicked hands. Oh, by the way, he was delivered by the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He will write in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 24 that Christ bore in his own body, this is what he says, our sins on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter was Christ and cross-centered. One of the guys I was listening to on this text mentioned that, and I didn't verify this, but I'm sure it's true, that if you look at the top 100 books on the Christian bestseller list, not a 10 of them will make much of the cross at all. Richard Niebuhr many years ago said this of so-called liberal Christianity, quote, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. Now, nearly every evangelical church, forget the liberal churches, would say that they're Christ-centered. But I'm increasingly believing less and less are actually cross-centered. I was at an evangelical church uh, not many weeks ago, and I, I, the whole service, the whole service, the whole service, I did not hear about Christ crucified. Song? Nope. Prayer? Nope. Sermon up. I did hear you need to accept Jesus, but why? Why? Accept him like I accept you, and you accept, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? No, 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 no. Greeks, Greeks demand a sign. And Jews, give me some of that wisdom. No, Jews demand a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Foolishness to some, stumbling block to others, but to us who are being saved, the power of God. So has 
the truth of Christ's cross truly landed on you, that on the cross, Jesus paid it all. Can you say with Paul in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which I've been crucified to the world and the world unto me. So truth number one, the cross of Christ, Jesus paid it all. Now, the second and last point, our cross, the cross of Christians. Verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus seized the occasion to show that not only did he need to go to a cross, that in a sense, his followers would too. Now, he's not at all teaching, of course, that somehow we add to the atonement, that in any way, shape, or form, we pay for our sins. No, Jesus paid for them in full. What he is saying is truly trusting in him and following him may cost you everything, up to and including your life. People did not take up the cross as a hobby. Tried any hobbies lately? Yeah, I want to start taking up a cross here and there, you know? People didn't take up a cross as a fitness program. No, people took up a cross for one reason. They were going to die on it. Somebody says, well, Jesus has somebody else carry the cross. They didn't die. Yeah, that's because Jesus was so depleted in his humanity, they had to actually ask this guy to carry his cross. But nobody carried a cross except that it was leading to a death. Now, what exactly can we break down verse 24 even more? Some people so hyper-dissect the four clauses of verse 24 that I think they lose the big picture. We'll get into a few of these details, but the big picture is this. It's saying the same thing from, from different angles, that if, you, that if you truly come to Christ, as I said, following him may cost you everything. You must be willing for it to do so, even to the point of death. In other words, if you truly come to Jesus Christ for salvation, you come submitting to him as Lord. With all of your feeble and your, your, your foibles, your, your, your falling, your stumbling, all of that. You, you come to him, okay, you are now the Lord, not me. Look at these four expressions briefly, briefly. Component one, if anyone would come after me, it's a way of saying trusting in him. Component four, you will follow me, right? So trusting puts you in motion of following him. Not saying, well, I can articulate the gospel just right, so I must be a Christian. No, trusting, believing ends up in following. And that following would include a life of components two, denying yourself. And you will fail at that sometimes, but that will be the trajectory. In fact, a trajectory that might even take you to component three, taking up a cross and dying. You are willing to follow him and his word, even when it hurts, all the way to the point of death. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this, that how you follow shows whether you've truly been forgiven. Hey? 
Much better to be offended right now than to be damned forever. It doesn't mean, of course, that you don't fail. Nobody's saying that. The scripture doesn't say that. Back to Peter. Peter, um, <clears throat> yeah, he, he whiffed on that big time, right? Later, he's going to deny Jesus how many times? Three times. To who? What's some of the people who deny Jesus to? A servant girl. Later, after Pentecost, this bold preaching, he's going to be hanging out in Galatia with his Gentile brothers. They're cool. They eat together. They do life together, as people say. But then the Jews come around, and they ain't doing life together, right? And Paul's got to get in his face. So he's going to have some really serious issues, like us. But note, Peter always gets up, right? He ultimately always gets up. And the overall trajectory of Peter's life, with all of its, like, like us, is following the Lord. In fact, church tradition tells us that he will die a martyr. And what's more, tradition tells us that he had such a reverence for Jesus Christ, the living Lord, that when he was crucified, he said, no, no, I'm not worthy to be crucified like this. Crucify me upside down by my feet. Most of us, probably all of us in this room, will not be called on to follow Jesus to your death. Who knows what could happen? here or you go abroad. But most of us, probably all of us, will not be executed for our faith. But that said, life will furnish us with plenty of opportunities to show whether we really, truly have taken up the cross. Plenty of opportunities. I quote Sean O'Donnell from his excellent commentary, quote, so what is this cross we must carry? Is it enduring suffering? Those trials and tribulations of life, like, a, like the death of a loved one, economic hardship, poor health, a tyrannical boss, a lazy husband, a rebellious child, and so on, in ways that are faithful to Scripture and honor God? Is it that? Or is it persecution? Suffering for believing, preaching, and living out the gospel. I think it can be both. Job in us carried as much as a cross as John and Patmos or Paul in prison. Now, again, I, I, don't, I really don't want to mention much about Kenya at this point, but, but a couple things just quickly came to mind as I was going through my notes on the airplane about being willing through life's hardship to, to say, I'm going to keep following you because you're worth it. You're glorious. You're good to me. Even when I can't see it, you are good to me. There was a woman who lived in some of the homes, some of the places we went to, um, who basically lived in a mud-walled hut. Probably not much bigger than an alcove right around um, our washrooms. That was, that was maybe a little bit, her house was just a little bit bigger. And because on the other side of the border, the Ethiopians were messing with the dam, trying to flood people out, since 2019, Every day to get to her house, she has to roll up her dress to above her knees. We made a home visit with her. We had to roll our pants up to mid-thigh and still got wet, going through stuff that I won't talk about. 
to get to her place. She does that every day. Her, her children do that. She has three children. Her husband passed away a few years ago. And every day she makes sure she gets her children to school and to the care points with Christ Hope. And when she shows up, she looks like she just stepped out of getting ready for a nice dinner. Like, how, just normal. And the joy that she radiated to, to, to get there and, and, and the joy that she expressed in the Lord, I mean, it was just, it was a mind-boggling contrast. Some of the most abject poverty I've ever seen. I, I hadn't smelled that smell in 30 years since serving in, in, in the Marine Corps in Somalia over three decades ago, all came back. Abject poverty coupled with exultant trust and praise and gratitude to, to the Lord. And man, that was convicting to all of us. Like all the blessing that we have, how easily we let that get in the way of worshiping the living God, right? And this is not a diatribe against our wealth. It's a gift, but it is a warning, is our wealth an impediment to worshiping the Lord or something that accelerates our worship of the Lord? There was another lady, same washed out house. This time, she lived for one year with a foot of water in her hut. Mosquito nets hanging with holes in them, trying to sew them up together. All I think she had was a calendar on the wall and a little hutch with some grain and some vegetables. I mean, that, that was her life. This lady was 75, rearing with the help of Christ's hope her, her young grandson because all seven of her kids had passed away. One HIV, one cancer, and five malaria. And yet, such a steady trust and joyful countenance in Christ and his cross. That's taking up your cross. I have to ask myself, do I seek to love my enemies when my flesh wants to do something far different? Often, no. Do I love my wife? Do you love your wife in spaces when she might not be as lovable as other times? And wives, do you submit to your husbands in spaces when they might not be as submittable as otherwise, if that's a word? Do I nurture and discipline my kids when it's not so receptive? Do I reach lost friends even when I fear their disapproval? Do I work hard for my employer even when he's a jerk? I could go on and on, obviously. And most of us probably gulped somewhere in these questions, right? And what do they do? They thrust us back to the cross of Christ. But if you truly go to the cross of Christ where Jesus paid it all, then you'll be thrust back to taking up your cross and everyday life, seeking to submit to him holistically. And as I said in my introduction, many can say the right thing about the gospel, but their life does not reflect what a Christ follower looks like. James Montgomery Boyce said, quote, Christ's death on the cross is only a value to those who are willing to die for themselves and follow him. And I must hasten to close this out, but Jesus gives us three reasons why we should really seriously take this truth. That he paid it all, yes, and also following him might cost you everything. He gives four in the Greek, gars, G-A-R, that's how we transliterate it, it's for or because. Reason one, 
Reason why you should take this seriously. I should take this seriously. Reason one, verse 25, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's like this. You can win now and lose forever, or you can lose now and win forever. If you choose the crown now, you can have it, but you're going to get the cross forever. Or you can choose the cross right now and receive the crown forever. One of the commentators said, yes, the devil can give you an imitation of heaven for now, a paltry one at that, and then it will be hell to pay. Reason two, verse 26. It's a question of valuation. What do you really value? For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Let's say in living for yourself, you get the whole world. Not just season tickets to all your favorite teams. Not just credit cards that are unlimited to any place you want to shop. Not just any, I mean, you, 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 listen, I think Elon Musk is valued at $199 billion. And Mark Zuckerberg at $165 billion. That's just a drop in the bucket of the world. You know that. So imagine you had the whole world in this lifetime. Would that be worth your soul? Would that be worth your soul? That's what he's asking you. But how do you really feel? We're not asking for the textbook answer, but for the answer that comes from your heart. There's an Irish folk song, a love song. It's a beautiful song. You should Google it sometime out of... Uh, to learn a little bit about Irish heritage. But the song says, if I have your, I can't sing it, forget. If I, if I have your love, I have everything. It's quite a beautiful song. Can we say that about God? That if I have your love, I really do, even though I got water up to here, have everything. Can I say that? Can, can you say that? Do you profess Christ, but find yourself perpetually dissatisfied, perpetually cynical, perpetually bitter, perpetually not praising the Lord? Maybe you ought to stand back and say, have I really valued Christ above my soul? Again, I, I, I just can't help it. We, one of the days we served in the slums of Nairobi, the largest one there called Mathari, 700,000 people living in the most abject conditions, far more than Kisumu, or Kisumu where we were at. And yet, the joy that I saw authentically emerge from people's kid lips. Some of the kids who trusted Christ and some of the adults. And even, even the scripture that they quoted so easily. It was just, it, even, an H, there was a ministry where we went and visited HIV positive people who had three months to get some medication and food and many of them come back to life. Because in, in that culture, if you're a wife and you have HIV, who maybe you got it from your husband, you're thrown out in the street. Or if you're a son, you might be cast aside. And so they're coming around and giving hope, help, and the gospel to, to such people. And to see, we heard, we heard five ladies testify one of the days of going through the program and f finding 
physical life and also some of them spiritual life. It was, it was incredible, their joy. A question of valuation. It's important to note here that Jesus is not simply saying, hey, 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 listen, fam, if you, if you don't follow me, you're just going to miss out on a few nice bennies. Because there are people who twist this text who say Jesus is talking about a second optional level of discipleship. If you want, you can get in on the believer plan, economy seating, okay? And if you want to go in the discipleship plan, then you get the, I wanted that seating up front in the plane after eight hours, like sitting like this, big, big seats, I would have taken that. And there are people who say that following Christ is like that, option one, option two. But I just want to remind us that following Jesus, a believer is a disciple is a follower. They're all synonymous. They're all referencing the same thing from different directions. In other words, Jesus is not slapping them on the wrist and saying, sorry, brother, sorry, sister. Instead of getting a mansion in heaven, all you get is a refurbished cottage. Not saying that. No, no, no. Be clear. He is not saying that. He just talked in verse 25 about losing your life, eternal life. Verse 26 about forfeiting your soul. And in that day, in that day, some will be seen for what they really are. I don't want that to be me, and I don't want that to be you. Verse 27, he references this judgment. For the Son of Man, and there's some serious sections coming on the return of Christ. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. For those who are truly in Christ, we can rejoice of the truth of Romans 8.1, that there is therefore, how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not, not, nothing, not a drop of it, all absorbed by Christ on the cross. And in fact, in grace upon grace, because Jesus paid for our sin, the only coming payday we have is being rewarded for acts of of faith and service to he and others, a.k.a. Matthew 25. On the other hand, phonies will be revealed for what they are in this eternal judgment shakedown. That though they're able to say Jesus is Lord, he really wasn't their Lord. Now verse 28, we end here. Some have made unnecessarily difficult. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's no shortage of views on what it means to see him coming in his kingdom. Some people say it's the resurrection. Some people say it's the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Some people say it's his second coming. But you want to remember that these numbers we call chapter divisions and verse references weren't in the original text, right? We get that. And I think the most obvious explanation of what it means some of you will not taste death until you see Jesus come in his kingdom is a few sentences later, what we're going to look at next week, the transfiguration. Whereas one commentator says, the future momentarily tiptoes into the presence as Jesus unveils his glory to three men there, Peter, James, and John, who indeed will see the kingdom, the king in his glory before their death. What's the point of him ending there? It's this. Everything I have been saying is true. Next week we'll prove that. Oh, ooh, 
There's glory coming off this man. He's not just a man. He's God and man. So I want to end with a one minute and 58 second video that, that I saw before I went away. It's by a, a friend of mine's father who uh, was a pastor. He's now in glory, and he, he just really appreciates his father and the ministry he had, and he put together this clip. And this clip, is he's talking about this coming judgment. I just want us to watch it, and children, he, he, he specifically addresses children in this. So this is for all of us. Hopefully, along this sermon, you, you, you got something. This is for adults and children. Then I'm going to end with one or two sentences. We're going to pray, and we're going to sing. Amen? And when Jesus comes back, judgment will fall on the whole world. Matthew 24 says it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. People are going to be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, which is not wicked behavior. It's just normal behavior. But they're oblivious to God. And when judgment falls, salvation is experienced. The dead in Christ are raised up first, and we who are alive and remain are caught up together to usher our Savior to the earth, and we're separated like sheep and goats, and the horrible judgment takes place in those words, depart from me, for I never knew you are spoken. And then his people here enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And I just want to say to the children today, children, you know about Noah's flood. But guess what? There's another judgment coming, boys and girls. It's not going to be a flood of water. It's going to be a flood of fire. And everything that you see is going to melt. But those who are in the ark, namely Jesus Christ, will not come under that judgment. Noah was right. Boys and girls, mom and dad are right. Your Sunday school teachers are right. Your pastors are right. Most importantly, God is right. Judgment is coming. And unless your sins are paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ, and unless you come to him and trust in him to be your savior, that judgment will consume you, and you will be sent to hell for all eternity. You shouldn't say that to children, pastor. And say that to anybody. If they're old enough to understand it, they need to hear it. Let's be like the Ninevites. When Jonah came and he said, repent, did they say, well, I got 39 days to play with? Did they say that? No, they repented in sackcloth and ashes. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day to receive Jesus Christ. Today is the day to turn from your sin. Harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. For he that often being reward, warned, and rejects that warning, will suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. So, Jesus is so merciful to end with a word of warning about that judgment. If he didn't care, if he didn't love us, he would just let it happen, right? But he does so out of love. So there's Christ's cross, and there's our cross. Jesus absolutely paid it all. But following him may cost you everything. And in saving faith, you embrace that reality. For he shall reign forever and ever and ever.